We've been going through the uh, book of John on Saturday nights for the past few weeks. We talked about the first week that Jesus is God and looked at all the biblical evidence that we have available to us that confirms that. Uh, the next week we talked about Jesus is the Word. Last week we looked at Jesus is life and Jesus is light. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is life. Jesus is light. They're going to be recurring themes for us throughout the book of John. But tonight we're going to move on in our text. We're actually going to cover several verses. On chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And what? The world did not know him. So Jesus came into the world, the world that, as we've already looked at, the world that he created, and the world did not recognize him. They didn't recognize him as the creator, as the Messiah, that he was even sent from God. Verse 11 tells us that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to the Jews, and as we know, to the Gentiles. Jews, they didn't receive him, did they? They didn't really welcome him. Uh, he wasn't what they expected. He wasn't even what they wanted. He didn't meet their expectations. Most of them were looking for what? A king, a military leader, someone like David. That's what they were looking for. That's who they wanted to be their Messiah. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. It's interesting here that the first time we see his own used, the Greek word translated his own used in this verse is what we would call a neuter form. So it's referring to creation. And the second time it says his own, it's in masculine form. So it's referring to humanity. So in other words, Jesus came into this world. He came to creation. And his own humanity didn't recognize him. All of creation acknowledged him, what he had created. But there was one part of creation that didn't. History has proven that human nature is the only part of nature that refuses to worship God and his own did not receive him his own did not receive him who well simply put he came to everything that he created but the very thing that he created in his own image did not receive or acknowledge him they refused to believe who he was who he said he was Israel the Jews had a history with God, as we know. They were God's chosen people. We can go back into the Old Testament and see all the things, that interaction between God and his people, Israel. But they had a history of rebellion with God, didn't they? 
And they still continued in it, even at this time. They didn't receive or acknowledge him. They refused to believe in him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Uh, as we come to know the Lord, there's many times that then we come across family and friends, and we don't necessarily always receive a warm welcome from them, do we? Because of our newfound faith that we have, that we're excited about, that we want to tell them about. It isn't always readily received by them, is it? They know who we are. They know what we used to be like. And so they're skeptical. They're not really sure about us, are they? John in this verse is thinking not only what happened in the early days of Israel's history, but he has in mind here what has happened when the word came to his own place. His own did not receive him. Yet, there were some who did, as we know. John uh, writes that for us. Because in the first word of verse 12, what do we see? We find a word that, that gives hope. Three letters, but. <laughs> but, however, although, in spite of all of this, we read in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So we know that there were some who received him, those who became his own and God's own, because they believed in him, who he was, what he said, and what he did. And we can see what Jesus says about those who received him in John Chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is not the his own that we see in verse 11. It's the his own that we see in verse 12, those that received him. Now, in the real Lord's Prayer, we touched on a couple weeks ago, I think, on the Lord's Prayer. The real Lord's Prayer, in John chapter 17, Jesus was praying for those that did receive him and those, for those that will or would receive him. And he says in verse 25 of chapter 17, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. These. The these he's referring to are the those <laughs> that are in verse 12, chapter 1. Now, did you follow me on that? The these that he's referring to is the those that he's referring to in verse 12. But he gave the right to become children of God to those who believed in his name. Who were the those? Well, he tells us in verse 13, chapter 1 of John. Verse 13 says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those are the those. Not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born, they came about, they came to be something different now than just born. New birth. Not of blood, not because they were born of a certain lineage, not because of descent, 
right? Not of the will of the flesh, not because they thought that they deserved it, desire, and not of the will of man, not because of what they said or did, not because of determination. So you have those three things, not of dissent, not of desire, and not of determination, not just because they were of the Jewish lineage, right? Because we know that Christ also came for the Gentiles. And they also couldn't will this on their own. There wasn't anything that they could do to deserve it. They couldn't determine in their hearts, I want to be God's. just didn't work. So we see that they're no longer just born of man, but now they're born of God. Born of God, born again, this new birth. Not born again physically, but born again spiritually. Now we're going to look at this in greater detail when we get into chapter 3 of John, where we see this late night conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. We're going to see in verse 3 that Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused by this, and he said, well, how can these things be? So he says, how can these things be? And then Jesus responds with what we've already seen here. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? The teacher of Israel. <laughs> Here's one who is the teacher of Israel and he doesn't understand these things. Well, we're going to get into Nicodemus a little bit later, but that rings true of what we talked about before that his own did not receive him. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and he did not know these things. Take a look, if you will, in chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 1 and verse 14 now together. We're going to run those back to back. I'm not asking you to ignore the other 12 verses that are in between there. I'm just asking you to take a look at this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's one continuous theme, if you will, about what? The Word. We've already determined, we've already shown scripturally that Jesus is the Word. We could substitute His name in for all of those words. <laughs> so, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, and Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Maybe simplistic in some ways. Uh, in basic Christianity, we know that to be true. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, who He was and is and what He did and does, Jesus was from the beginning, Jesus was with God, Jesus was God, and now Jesus became flesh. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we're going to park on this verse tonight. We're going to take a, a good look at this verse because there's just so much in there for us. The word became flesh. We know that Jesus is the word. John tells us that and it became flesh. He put on flesh. What's this trying to say? It's, it's five very simple words. And the Word 
became flesh. But it's probably the most profound statement ever uttered in the history of the universe. These five little words, the word became flesh. What's it saying? Well, it's saying quite a number of things. It's saying that infinity, because Jesus goes on forever, right? Alpha, Omega, beginning and the end, first and last, eternal. Infinity became finite. Infinity came down into this finite world. So eternity, Jesus, got squeezed into time. What we recognize is our little box that we live in, in this world, this time element that we have, he came down and inserted himself into it. So eternity got squeezed into time. Also, the invisible became visible. People finally got to see a picture of God. The supernatural reduced itself to confinement in the natural. We are living in the natural and the supernatural, again, inserted himself into our world. We live in this natural world and God is supernatural and he came into our natural world supernaturally as Jesus Christ in the flesh. There was a story years ago in Reader's Digest about a mom as she put her small boy into bed at night. And as she's leaving the room, ready to turn the light off, the boy cries out, I don't want you to go, Mom. I want you to stay here. And the mom says to him, uh, you know, don't worry. God will be with you. God will be with you through the whole night. And the little boy responded, but I need a God with skin on. <laughs> I need a God with skin on. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God with skin on. It's, it's simple, but theologically it's just it's deep. But it's a great mystery. Paul even wrote of this. In 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul said, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, and believed on in the world, received up in glory. Paul's writing about this mystery, trying to understand God taking on flesh and coming to the earth. Hold your place in John and turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 5. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Two things being said there that should jump out at us. It says, coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the English word translated dwelt is the Greek word eskenosin, which means to encamp among us, to pitch a tent among us, to tabernacle among us. You probably heard that translated that way before. The word became 
flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. The tabernacle was the place where they met with God. It was the point of contact. The temple was the same way when the temple was built. But in the New Testament now, new set of rules, Jesus Christ came as the point of contact between God and man. Christ himself dwelt among us. Christ himself tabernacled among us. The tabernacle and the temple were temporary dwelling places. They didn't last. They were destroyed. God dwelling in Christ has always been and will always be. The tabernacle, as we see a description of it in the book of Exodus, was covered with badger skins. It was plain and earthy on the outside. But the inside was gold, silver, precious stones, and fine embroidery. For the very presence, the substance, the glory of God dwelt there. Jesus was the same. So ordinary looking, Judas had to identify him to the Roman soldiers by a kiss. There was nothing that stood out about him unless you knew him. Those that were around him on a regular basis, they knew him, they recognized him, they even knew his voice. But to somebody from the outside, not the case. He was just an ordinary man on the outside. But on the inside, the presence, the substance, the glory of God dwelt there. Now, the, the Gospels have contained in them the life of Jesus Christ here on earth. It's documented for us. Evidence that he was here. Evidence that he dwelt here. Evidence that he interacted with man as a man and as God. He was 100% God and man. And John testifies of this as an eyewitness. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When we beheld his glory, as we move on in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John saying, we saw his glory. We witnessed his glory firsthand. We were eyewitnesses. And we know that John writes further about this in, in his other book, 1 John he talks about we have heard him, we have seen him, we have looked upon him, we have handled him, we bear witness of him, we declare him. Why did John write these things? He wrote these things to us for a purpose. 1 John 1.4 tells us one of those purposes. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full, your joy may be complete he wants us to know Christ. He wants us to know how he impacted their lives. He wants our joy to be full as well. He also writes in 1 John 5, 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. He wants us to know about eternal life. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. He wrote these things for that purpose. So John and the rest of these eyewitnesses, they beheld, they saw, they looked upon, they beheld his glory. He writes that in verse 14, we beheld his glory. The glory is only the only begotten of the Father. Those two phrases are tied together. They run together. It could be read, we saw firsthand 
the glory of Jesus Christ, which is the same as the glory of the Father. Jesus is the glory of God. The glory exhibited by Jesus was the glory of God. I've got one other place that I want you to turn tonight before we finish up. Exodus chapter 33. We're going to be looking at the glory of God. A conversation that happened between God and Moses and Moses getting to experience firsthand the glory of God. Chapter 33, we'll start at verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I might find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. And he said, this is God speaking, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Moses said, please, please show me your glory. Then God said to him, in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses is going to get to experience a part of God's glory, isn't he? For one, God talking directly with Moses, and then God says, here, stand on this rock, and I'm going to take my hand and kind of you know, put you in the cleft of the rock, and then I'm going to hold my hand there, Till I walk by, and then I'm going to take my hand away. Yeah, and you get to see the backside of my glory as I pass by because you can't look at my face directly. You'll be consumed. You die. So Moses had this great experience. He said, please show me your glory. John writes, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus, as he came to earth, is the perfect reflection of the Father, of God. John says, I saw it every day when I was with him. I saw his glory each and every day. In John 2, when we get there, we see there's a miracle that takes place in a little place called Cana. They went to this wedding. We know Jesus changed water into wine. And we read that story. We'll get into that deeper when we get to it. But we see in verse 11 of chapter 2 that 
John writes the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. His glory was manifested by this miracle that he did. And the miracles go on and on. And the teaching goes on and on. So these guys got to experience the glory of God through Jesus each and every day. Jesus manifested his glory to them every day. When he taught, when he served, how he loved, how he performed miracles, he manifested his glory in all these things. To the point where John writes in uh, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John couldn't even document all the things that Jesus did, but he gave us a lot to look at. But if someone were to ask you this week, can you give me a definition of God's glory? Give me a definition of that. You could do it with one word, and that word would be Jesus, right? The glory of Jesus Christ is manifested in the lives that have been changed by seeing him for who he is. His glory is manifested to us and in us. Each one of us, we have our own glory story. <laughs> As God manifested his glory to us by seeing him for who he is. And that changed our lives. We gave our lives over to the Lord. That's our glory story. That's our testimony, if you will. I don't think we write those kind of things down enough, do we? Because we know that there was that time when we came to the Lord. There was that event in our life where we received salvation. And from that point on, God has continued to show his glory to us, hasn't he? You've probably all heard of journaling. You know, when you write down those things that God's doing in your life. Journaling is a great thing to write down those glory stories when he's worked in our lives and we recognize it and we want to document it, to share it with someone else or just to have it for ourselves. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Jesus is fully grace and fully truth. The more we walk with Jesus, the more we learn about him. He's the perfect blend of grace and truth. We, on the other hand, not so much, right? Sometimes we can be very truthful without showing a whole lot of grace. We can be hard to be around at times. We can make others feel guilty. We're not showing much grace when we're like that, but sometimes... We can be very gracious and misrepresent the truth. We might be fun to be around for a time, but we might have a tendency to be a little flaky as well because we're not grounded in what? We're not grounded in truth. You see, grace without truth deceives people and ceases to be grace. Truth without grace crushes people and it ceases to be truth. Let me say those again for you. Grace without truth deceives people and ceases to be grace. And truth without grace crushes people and it ceases to be truth. Jesus was the perfect balance of grace and truth because he was grace and truth. 
In Acts 4, verse 33, we see the impact Jesus had on his disciples and the early church. It says, With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Much grace was upon them all. Why? Well, they were telling the truth. Grace was upon them. They were telling the truth about Jesus Christ. So what was the church growth formula, if you will, for the early church in the book of Acts? Grace and truth, truth and grace. <laughs> Much grace was upon them. They were telling the truth. You see, some churches today embrace truth but need a healthy dose of grace, don't they? But other churches, they talk a lot about grace, but they cry out for a healthy dose of truth. Now, the Jews in Jesus' day were familiar with truth. The law was truth, period. Grace was a term, you know, somewhat foreign to them. Grace was evident in the Old Testament, but it was just overshadowed so much by the truth, the law. They believed that if they kept the law, they were in good standing with God. The problem was that they couldn't. There's an author by the name of Randy Alcorn, and he writes in his book, The Grace and Truth Paradox, great book. It says that a bird needs two wings to fly. It makes sense. If he has only one wing, he's grounded. But Alcorn goes on to say that the gospel flies with the wings of grace and truth. Not one, but both. Jesus wasn't 50% grace and 50% truth. He was 100% of both. Again, we're not like that, are we? We sometimes choose one over the other. You ever seen a dog try to play with two chew toys at once? You know, you're, you're playing with this dog and there's a chew toy here and a chew toy over here. You know, and you throw the one to him and you tease him with the other. And the dog wants both, doesn't he? But he can't quite get both of them in his mouth. You know, unless he's a bigger dog. A bigger dog might be able to pull that off. Might, he might try it. So he gets one of those two toys in his mouth. He stuffs the other one in. But still, one has a tendency to just kind of spurt out. There's not room for both of those chew toys. And we sometimes act like a big dog, don't we? <laughs> we certainly have bigger mouths. But our minds struggle with holding on to both grace and truth at the same time. One or the other wants to spurt out, doesn't it? That's not the case with Jesus. He's 100% both, always. Sometimes we want to side with grace and we lack truth to go with it. Sometimes we want to give someone the truth and there's no grace. It's not sprinkled with grace. You know, some years ago, the bracelets came out. You guys probably remember them. WWJD, what would Jesus do? You know, that was, that was encouraging to have those. It was a good question. But I think it would have been better if to say, WDJD, what did Jesus do? We have this whole book available to us to tell us, right? It's not so much about what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? It's documented for us. Our mission statement here at Calvary Birth that you've seen, love God, love others. When we truly love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we're truly doing that, loving others happens very naturally, doesn't it? Because we're loving God the way that God would want us to love Him, 
his love working in us then helps us to love others naturally. And then grace will happen naturally. God's love, God's grace will shine through us to them. And we can share with them the truth. Think about this. Something's wrong if all unbelievers hate us. Something's wrong. But something's also wrong if all unbelievers like us. <laughs> We're getting into that balance of grace and truth there, aren't we? If we accurately demonstrate grace and truth, some will be drawn to us. Some will be offended by us as well. Jesus faced the same thing. He was true grace and true truth. And he still had some that were offended by his words and his deeds. But if we offend everybody, it's because we've taken on the truth mantle without grace. If we offend nobody, it's because we've watered down the truth in the name of grace. Jesus was and is full of grace and truth 100%. We see that in this verse. But we see something else there. He was full of what? Grace and truth. In that verse, grace comes before truth doesn't it? If we show grace to someone, it's going to be much easier to share the truth with someone as well. We are to show grace while giving truth, because that's what Jesus did. Amen?